Friends, grace and peace to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I was presiding at a wedding. It was a pretty normal wedding with all the typical trappings and details, but there was one detail that stuck out in particular, and that was the dress. I mean, this thing was epic. Like, layer after layer after layer of all kinds of white fabric, and there was this, like, 15-inch train behind it. It was so poofy, so overblown, that this fairly average-sized woman had trouble making it through many of our doors. People were walking all over the train. She almost took out her mother-in-law. She was knocking over plant stands. I mean, this dress was everywhere. And, of course, anytime she stopped, anytime she moved from one place to another... Her whole entourage, not just the maid of honor, but everyone had to get down on their knees to start tugging and pulling this giant train to get it out of the way, and of course to make it look perfect, because weddings are perfect. It was an amazing dress. And I think about that dress every time I hear the story of the call of Isaiah that we just heard this morning. Isaiah tells of a vision that he received from God. A vision, like a dream, where he was standing in the temple. And in the temple, it was this glorious sight of the six-winged angels flapping around and singing that beautiful song, the song we sing every time we gather here at this table. Holy, 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 the Lord God of heavenly hosts. All of earth and heaven are full of your glory. And it's this beautiful song, and it's ringing in his ears, and it's filling this whole giant temple in which he stands. And right there in the middle of the temple is God, sitting on God's throne. And the robes that God is wearing, the, the royal robes, are just cascading down from the throne all over the floor of the temple. Fabric upon fabric upon fabric, filling every square inch of real estate in the temple, such that Isaiah doesn't have anywhere to stand where he's not standing on God's dress. It just fills the whole place. And I, it's an image that I think might do well for us to remember. So I want you to just ponder that and hold in onto that for a little bit, this This dress, this robe, the royal presence of God literally filling every square inch of the temple. Well, this is the story of Isaiah's call, the day when God plucked him up out of obscurity and sent him on his way to do very important work. And of course, as often happens when people are called by God in Scripture and throughout the history of the church, Isaiah's first response is to come up with a million reasons why he doesn't want to do it. And of course, his first excuse is that I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. In other words, I'm not worthy, and I'm not sure they're worthy to hear what you have to say. And it's almost as if God says to Isaiah, yeah, I know. And that's exactly why you might be the man for the job. Because maybe they might be able to listen to you, since you are just like them. But I will purify you. I will make you clean. I will give you a fresh start. And you will go out and you will tell the people what they need to hear. And some of what Isaiah has to tell the people, they aren't going to want to hear. Some of it is a great message of hope. Others are significant challenges about how they are living their lives. But maybe, just maybe, they can listen to what Isaiah has to say. 
Well, now my guess is that most of you have not had an experience exactly like that, where you've had a vision or God has given you a phone call and talked to you in really clear language, telling you exactly what God needs from you to do. If you have had an experience like that, that's pretty awesome. I haven't. And my guess is most of you haven't either. But that doesn't mean that God is not also calling you. That God doesn't indeed have a special purpose for your life of faith. Indeed, in the Lutheran Church in particular, we we talk a lot about this thing called calling, vocation. That we believe that in the waters of baptism, you have been washed into a life. A life of purpose, a life of service, a life poured out for the sake of the world. And yes, God calls us in our various different settings and circumstances and the various different gifts that we might bring to the table, our experiences, our failures, as well as the things we've managed to get right. God has an individual plan for your life, a call over your life, if you will. And yet, at the same time, I do think we have a common call into which we have been washed as well. That we are connected to one another. And that there is a kind of overarching what, uh, call that God has to describe how we might live in the world. And we would do well to listen to what that is. And I want to hold out that image again of God's robes filling the temple. Because I wonder if, if we might think about our lives of faith and action in the world as if we were those bridesmaids getting down on our hands and knees to grab onto the hem of God's royal robes, the very sign and presence of God's grace and glory in the world. And that what we are together called to do as the people of God is to yank and pull and stretch to stretch those robes out, to stretch out God's grace and glory until indeed heaven and earth are full of the glory of God. And that each and every day working together, we might be able to to spread that gift until you can't walk anywhere without tripping over God's grace. That's the work to which we have been called. That's a lot to think about. But we have a very straightforward plan that is just given to us in the waters of baptism. A sort of five-step model, if you will, for how we might live into the gift of spreading God's grace in a world that is literally dying to hear it. Whenever we celebrate holy baptism or return to the gift of baptism in an affirmation or saying yes to this gift, we make five promises. And those five promises are a model for what the life of faith might look like. And we've talked about these before. It's my hope that by the time we're not in ministry anymore, you have these memorized. So pay attention, all right? The first is that we live among God's faithful people. That is, we have been washed into a community. There is no such thing as an individual relationship with Jesus. You can't be the church on your own. We are the church together. We are washed into one body that shares one common mission in the world. It works its way out in lots of different individual ways, of course, but we share this one common bond, which is wonderful because what it means is that throughout all time and space, we are surrounded by a great host 
of witnesses from whom we can learn what it looks like to to try and live this life to which we have been called. In fits and starts, sometimes with great triumph and sometimes with great tragedy, but we are called to listen to the body, to listen to the family of Christ, and to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world and throughout time about how to do this together. It's such a gift to be accompanied by such great people. And it's hard because some of the folks in the body of Christ are a little cranky. Some of the folks in the body of Christ are people that you may not necessarily want to hang with all the time. Some of the folks in the body of Christ might look so different from you in any number of different ways that it is hard to even imagine that we share a common life or a common call. But we do. We are stuck with each other, whether we like it or not. We share this one common call because those waters cannot be divided. The second step into living into what it means to be that body is to hear the word of God and to share in the Lord's Supper, which is worship. But it is important to remember that worship is central to the life of the Christian church. Not just because it's fun. Sometimes it isn't. But because worship points us to this enduring fact. And that is that the life of faith is a life of grace. What that means is that we are stewards of a mystery that is not of our making. We didn't write this story. We might add a flourish here and there across time, but this story is given to us. It is shoved into our ears when we gather to listen, to listen to what the Spirit is saying to God's people, listen to what God is telling us about the world in which we live, in all its grace and glory and in all its tragedy and brokenness. We gather to listen, and we gather to be fed. This is a meal for which you did not work and you cannot earn, but it is given to you. We come forward with our hands open, our mouths open to receive, to receive God's gift in this meal that binds us together. When Isaiah was in the temple One of the angels pressed a burning hot coal to his lips. We're not going to do that this morning. You're welcome. But your lips will in fact be touched. That the very presence of God's grace among us will cross your lips and enter your lives. And you will be full. You will be changed. Because you will receive what God is giving. And then we share the good news of God in Christ through word and deed. It's all fine and good for us to get together and worship together and share the peace together and try and imagine what it means to be the body of Christ together in this place. It's all fine and good to be given that gift of grace at this table and in those waters, but it doesn't make a darn bit of difference out there if we don't take it with us. And so we leave this place with our our fists gripped tightly on the fabric of God's robes, on the hem of God's grace and glory, 
and we tug and we pull and sometimes it's hard work. Sometimes it's beautiful. But we share that gift with the world because the world is dying to hear it. And we go out of this place and we share the word of grace in a world that does not understand what grace looks like. And we do our best and we do it together. And then we serve all people following the example of Jesus Christ. That is, it's one thing to tell people that God loves them. It's another thing to show it with your body. It's one thing to tell people that God is a God of grace. It's another thing to actually be gracious and merciful and loving to our neighbors. To be of service. To find those who are lost and to shower them with a word of comfort and welcome. To find those who are hungry and to feed them with whatever it is they need. And so we go into the world as servants, as people who are willing to put others' needs in front of our own, as people who are called to be truly kind and humble. This is a weird week. No matter how you felt about what happened on Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning, I think we can all agree that this last 16, 18 months has torn something open in a fairly significant way and revealed an ugliness about who we are and how we live together in this country that I'd love to put right back in the toothpaste, too. It has not been fun. It has been difficult. It has been painful. It has been fearful. And it has been ugly. And we are not going to even begin to move forward as the people of this country or as people of faith if we can't begin to be kind, to truly be kind with our bodies to those who are hurting in whatever form or fashion they're hurting, to be missionaries of humility and grace to people whose lives are in turmoil here and around the world. That's hard work to be kind in a very unkind world. But I don't know what else we could possibly begin with than just sharing a a bit of grace and kindness. And then we strive for justice and peace in all the earth. Now, this one is the hardest one, or at least it's hard for a lot of us, because it means that sometimes we talk about politics. Because it is one thing to feed the hungry, it's another to ask why they're hungry in the first place. It's one thing to be kind to someone who is left out, it's a whole other thing to build a society in which no one is left out to structure our lives in such a way that all people really do get to participate and to be valued and to be loved as they are. And sometimes when we do that work, we don't agree on everything. I don't know if you know this, but there are people in this room who I don't agree with about some of the ways we might move forward. And there are people in this room who don't agree with me. And sometimes that means we wrestle with each other. Sometimes that means we misunderstand each other. And sometimes that means we have to work at being kind to each other and sticking in 
a conversation when it's becoming difficult. And sometimes, sometimes as a result, it feels like there might be distance among us, at least in the beginning. Which is why we go back to the beginning. And we pass by those waters, and we dip in our fingers, and we trace the sign, and we are reminded that indeed we belong to each other. That is not negotiable, that we belong to each other. That the world that God is making is a world in which God's grace and and glory cover over all things and all people. No one is left out. And so we wash again. We remember again. We share the peace again. This is in your frequently asked questions about worship book, but people often ask me, how many people should I shake hands with at the passing of peace, right? Some of you are a little overblown on that one, okay? There's some really friendly people in this place. And I know it's fun to hug your wife or your child or your parent or your best friend first. But I often suggest to, to, to people, and, and particularly in a week like this, you might want to go first to someone you know you disagree with. Someone you know is hurting or has hurt you. And sometimes that might be your spouse. (laughs) It often is. But that is not just a friendly little intermission where we get to stretch our legs. It is a reminder of a promise. A promise that we belong to one another. That we are inextricably bound to each other. And that there will never be peace unless that peace comes from somewhere else. And it comes from there, and it comes from here, and it is not of our making. If we can begin to practice these five promises, if we can begin to celebrate what it is to be bound to one another, to receive God's grace, and to walk from this place holding tightly to that promise, tugging at it until it spreads itself out, until the whole world indeed is bursting with the grace and glory of God. And we can share that in word and in deed by getting on our knees and actually loving each other, actually serving each other, actually pouring ourselves out for those in need, and doing the hard wrestling work of trying to figure out how justice and peace might be real. If we can begin to practice those promises, indeed, slowly but surely, day by day, and by God's grace, you won't be able to go anywhere in this world without literally tripping over the grace of God. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.